So if we're in an organizing space where we're organizing for a community, say that, you know, I may not be a part of, you know, making sure that I'm not silencing anyone, making sure that, you know, those voices do get amplified because at the end of the day, it's not about us. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, a conversation about allyship in the fight against anti-Blackness. The uprising against systemic racism that was sparked by the killing this past May of George Floyd, a Black man and father, by a group of police officers in Minneapolis, has set in motion a series of urgent conversations all over the country and the world. Here at Latino USA, we've been talking about the concept of allyship, especially in the movement against anti-Blackness within many Latinx communities. It's a conversation that's been echoed in many other places, and often these days, it's being led by young people. So with that in mind, we reached out to our colleagues at YR Media. It's a national network of young journalists and artists based in Oakland, California. They put together a roundtable discussion about this topic for us, sharing their thoughts on what it means to be an effective ally in the fight to end racism. The conversation was moderated by Emiliano Villa. He's a contributor to YR Media, and it features three other young panelists. Let's dive in. Take it away, Emiliano. Hi, everyone. My name is Emiliano Villa, and thank you for joining me today to discuss allyship. Today's conversation is about non-Black allies, our privileges, and what we need to be doing to support and uplift Black people. We've put together a panel of young activists, reporters, and social media makers to talk about the diversity at Black Lives Matter protests and the young people leading the movement. We'll also explore what it means to be an ally during this critical time of racial tension in our nation. To discuss this, we're joined by 21-year-old Ajani Torres. Um, Ajani, could you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi. Um, I live in Oakland, California, raised in Oakland, California. I'm currently transferring to UC Davis this fall as a plant biology major. I also identify as she, her, and um, Mexican indigenous. And yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Johnny. We're also joined by 17-year-old Primo Legazo Goldberg. So Primo, could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. I am a senior at Lekwomerding High School in San Francisco, California. Grew up in Oahu, Hawaii. I identify as Black, Filipino, Irish, Jewish, lots of different things mixed in there. Um, I'm also queer, non-binary. I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. Um, And I'm just very happy to be here with all of you today. Thank you. And Johnny and Primo are both contributors to YR Media. And we also have 19-year-old Nadia Brooks. Nadia, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you identify? Sure. So my name is Nadia Brooks. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Currently I'm organizing in my community again, which is Oakland, born and raised. I'm currently a student at UCLA. So I'll be entering my third year this fall, majoring in public affairs and minoring in environmental systems and society. Oh, I identify as African-American, Puerto Rican, and Mexican. So, yeah. Thank you. So, as you can tell, this group that we have on our panel today is very diverse. um, And we all have our own lived experiences and 
you know, we're going to get into that today with our discussion. So I'll just get on with my first question. So this one goes out to Ajani and Primo, because I know you guys have been out protesting, right? What were your interactions like with the people in the crowd? Um, my interactions, everybody there was really positive. Like you just feel like good about seeing all those people there and just like knowing that people still care about what's going on right now in this country because there are a lot of people that are coming out that are, you know, doing a lot of bad things. So it's really nice to just kind of be re reassured. I think you can look to the person next to you and like you can just know that they're just as passionate about the movement as you. I think our generation is just so tired of what's been going on that we have a lot of more passion about it. And we're so young that we just, I think we have the energy to be like, we can't let our lives be like this forever. I really agree with Ajani. Um, depending on like where it is, what the circumstances are, um, protests can really be a really like safe feeling and really empowering thing. Um, or sometimes it can feel almost the opposite of what it's supposed to, like, especially like as a Black person. It kind of reminds me of this subject that's been on my radar recently um, that has to do with like non-Black folk using this Black Lives Matter attention to shift attention to other issues. Have you guys been keeping up with that or seen that? That is a very good topic to bring up because as someone that's Latinx, Mexican, Indigenous, um, that is a very huge problem specifically in the community that I come from. I have family in Stockton, California, and they really don't believe that Black Lives Matter. Like they really believe everything Trump's telling them. Like they believe the media. They believe basically they don't really have their own thought to think for themselves. And so I've kind of I've had these conversations with them, like other family has had these conversations. A lot of it is misinformation. I think in times like this, we have to remember who's being affected right now. And right now, Black lives are being lost extremely at a high rate. And so even though other lives are affected in other ways, Latinos need to be educated on the ways that they oppress Black people themselves. And sadly, anti-Blackness is very ingrained in a lot of our cultures. So I think as allies, we have to tackle it and address it. So Primo and Nadia, how do you guys address anti-Blackness in your families or social groups? It's definitely difficult, like obviously. But I think that it's difficult because a lot of the ways in which anti-Blackness manifests are like really subtle, at least like in my experience. And one of the things that I don't necessarily really support about our generation is how often like memes that go viral are made humorous at the expense of a black person in that meme. Like the way that someone might be talking, the things they might be saying, the way they're walking, the way they're dressing. Um, and like all of that is rooted in like really deep traditions of racism in like media, like going back to like the Jim Crow era. People who I know like in my school, who are like sending around these memes and laughing them. And even just like non-Black people saying the N-word, that's been a really big issue at my high school. Those little things that people do like really regularly and really often that are anti-Black and are really racist, but people might not necessarily treat them with the same severity as they do something like George Floyd's death. Yeah, so... I feel like when we talk about anti-blackness, especially like in the Latinx community, 
as someone who does benefit from, you know, light skin privilege, I feel like it's important for me to be very vocal on colorism. It's ingrained from just like funny names to call people, all these different little phrases and things that um, people don't really think twice about saying before they say them, um, but they can be very harmful. I've had to have multiple, just a plethora of conversations with family members about think before you speak. Coming up on Latino USA. Allyship shouldn't be performative. It shouldn't be for other people. Like as long as we know that you are our ally and that you are supporting us, that's all we need. Stay with us, no te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp, a truly affordable online counseling service. Fill out a questionnaire online and get matched with a licensed counselor best suited to your mental health needs. Whether it's depression, anxiety, or trauma, BetterHelp will help you overcome what stands in the way of your happiness. Learn more at BetterHelp.com and get 10% off your first month with promo code LATINO. BetterHelp. Get help anytime, anywhere. What do you do when you have too many pickles in Alaska and not enough pancake syrup in New Jersey? On the next episode of Planet Money's Summer School, we send supply and demand to the rescue. It's the economics education you always wanted but never got around to. Every Wednesday, listen now to Planet Money from NPR. We're back. And before the break, we were listening to a panel of young journalists and activists from YR Media as they talked about allyship in the Black Lives Matter movement. In the next part of this conversation, the panelists talk about the importance of listening, the process of unlearning cultural behaviors, and the shooting of Breonna Taylor, a Black young woman shot and killed by police in her own apartment in Louisville, Kentucky, back in March. She was an emergency medical technician. Emiliano Villa is the host of this roundtable discussion, and he's going to pick it up from here. This movement has been very intersectional, and it's fighting for the people who are the most vulnerable. So I just want to hear a little bit about what you guys think about intersectionality and how you see it in the movement around you. I can jump on this one first. In my experience, what I've seen, like a lot of pride celebrations might have been toned down during Black Lives Matter because, like, the queer community knows what it's like for our people to be killed. We know what it's like for, like, violence to take place against us from the police. And so because we know that we can empathize with the Black community, even if um, we aren't Black, and give the Black Lives Matter movement that space. So, like, that's one, like, really beautiful and really positive aspect of intersectionality, I think. Especially, like, me being able to, like, reconcile like, I can be queer and Black 
um, because both of those communities and both of those identities can relate to this aspect of police brutality. On the more negative side, I guess, or challenging side, is that like when you do have an identity that is intersectional, like oftentimes society forces you to prioritize one or the other. Um, like you can only be black or you can only be queer and you can only like represent that identity and fight for one of those things at a time. Like it's one at a time. When I think that we have to remember that like intersectionality is being able to be all of it at once. Like you can be who you are and who you are can be many, many different things. I completely agree with you. Um, Nadia, did you have something to add about intersectionality in your movement? It's necessary. You know, when we're about to go out and try and organize and tackle these issues that we look at them through an intersectional lens. Like I can't stress it any more than that. It's just Black trans voices have been silenced for so long. And that's something that we incorporate into our discussions as organizers every day because it's necessary. No one has stepped back um, because especially when you have a lot of people that, you know, want to do good and want to create uh, positive social change in their communities, like it can sometimes get lost and lost in the sauce kind of as far as like making sure that certain people's voices are heard. You mentioned the idea of step up, step back, which is something that I really agree with and is something that I implement into my activism and just into my life. Another topic that I kind of wanted to go in on was unlearning things. Since we've talked about like the anti-Blackness in our own communities, in our own cultures, um, that's something that I've had to unlearn myself. And it's something that is a lot of work. You don't ever finish unlearning because the world around us is very racist and very anti-Black. So I wanted to hear a little bit about what you guys do to unlearn things in your environment and examples of things that you've had to unlearn. Yeah, I definitely feel like when it comes to unlearning, like there's a certain mindset I feel like you need to have when it comes to unlearning things. And I think that mindset is like, you have to be willing to accept that on this journey, you're not going to be happy. You know, you're going to find out things that are going to go completely against some things you've known your whole life. And so you have to be really willing to just kind of detach yourself from basically everything you've known and be able to look at the perspectives that um, those like certain topics have, you know, like you really have to kind of just forget that you have an opinion and kind of just listen. Oh, this is, um, this one kind of hits home for me because I grew up here in Hawaii. And like, I don't know how much just people in general know about like the people in Hawaii, but there are not a lot of black people here, like at all. Um, there's more now, I guess, sort of. But like when I was growing up and like when my parents were growing up, there are like not a lot of black people here and the black people that are here are like here for military. So they're not here very long. And so like growing up, like the idea of like blackness, like what does it mean to be black was like very foreign for me. It wasn't something that I thought about at all. Um, I was like the only black kid in a lot of situations. And then I moved to San Francisco a couple of years ago. And so obviously a very different place from Hawaii a lot more Black people. Um, and I realized that like the way that I talk, the words that I used, I guess like the accent that I had, you could call it, I sort of had to unlearn this idea that to be Black and to be, and to identify as Black, I had to like talk a certain way or dress a certain way um, because like that's what I was seeing around me. And so I had to sort of realize that 
blackness can't be pinned down by like how you speak or how you wear your clothes um, or where you live. Like blackness can be whatever you want. I guess that's like a different side of unlearning that I had to do just about like my own identity. So that ties kind of to the overall reason why we're having this conversation today, which is allyship. So I identify as Indigenous Latinx, Indigenous Mexican. I also like, I keep up with protests. I've signed petitions, you know, I do the work that I consider to make me a good ally, right? Um, But that's the thing. A lot of people don't know what makes up a good ally. What do you consider a good ally and what are they doing right now? Maybe Primo, you can start. Yeah, definitely. Because like a lot of this movement like started on social media um, and like a lot of this movement has also like taken place on social media, it's sort of like changed what it means to be an ally or like what people think it means to be an ally. I guess a good example would be like Blackout Tuesday. I think that a lot of people feel like, oh, I posted a black square. I hashtag Black Lives Matter. I've signed one petition that makes me an ally. Um, And so like that's one person. And another person might say like, oh my God, I'm attending all of the protests. I've signed all of the petitions. I'm posting every day, constantly 24-7 on my story. I'm also an ally. I personally feel like you don't have to be attending all the protests and posting 24-7 on your story um, and signing all these petitions if you are like a person who I know that I can like turn to and like talk to everyone like can see allyship differently. But for me, you don't necessarily have to be amazingly, aggressively, overpoweringly outspoken about your support for the Black Lives Matter movement if you are like actually supporting Black people and Black individuals on like a personal level. Allyship shouldn't be performative. It shouldn't be for other people. Like as long as we know that you are our ally and that you are supporting us, That's all we need. We're so chill. Like, we're good with that. Or, like, I am. You said performative activism, which is something that I've been seeing um, everywhere, really. And I guess I just want to dig deeper into that topic. And I just want to know how you guys tackled that. I guess first, could you explain to me, Nadia, what performative activism means and how have you had to tackle it in your own friend group or when you come across it? When I think of performative allyship, I just think of that first word performative, performing, performance. I feel like performative allyship, honestly, just it does more damage than it does good. And it's just really important to listen at the end of the day. You know, like an ally is someone who can listen and who can hold folks accountable. It's it's so much more than social media. And so I think that's something that a lot of people are still trying to learn and understand, but cute graphics are dope, you know what I mean? And they're helpful um, in catching people's attention and spreading info and news and knowledge. But the root of it is that people tend to forget that, you know, Breonna Taylor is a person. It just, it gets really uncomfortable to see people turn her into a meme like that. Um, And so I feel like that's what it really comes down to. Are you really doing the work? Yeah, definitely what Nadia and Prima are saying, I completely, oh my God, agree with. Um, You know, me specifically as a non-Black person, I think being a good ally is listening. 
you know, listening to what the community, the Black community wants from me, because it's not my job to tell them what I want to give them. They need to tell me what they want from me because I'm an ally to them. And essentially, I think that's what it means to be an ally. If you hear something being said around you, like step in, like if you have that privilege to check somebody, like do it, you know? I know that I've been having a lot of conversations with older people and sometimes it can get a little confrontational. So I wanted to ask you guys, um, when you guys talk to older generations about what's going on right now and the protests and how people are reacting, what kind of reactions do you get from them? Yeah, so I feel like I've been receiving a lot of love from my own like familial elders. Um, my abuela is very like, oh, I want to go march with you. But because of COVID, you know, she's been inside just on both sides of my family, on my mom's side and my dad's side, um, there's this very long history of like, you know, revolutionaries and folks who have been, you know, heavily involved in activism and movements like the United Farm Workers Movement. There has been <laughs> some disconnect, you know, maybe some of our like parents' ages, like generations, you feel me? And so, you know, folks are thinking, oh, you're too radical. You guys are dreaming too big. There's this idea that we don't know what we're talking about. The biggest conversation piece that I've always used with my elders has always been like, you know, what age were you when you were involved in these movements, you know? And so just kind of reminding them that y'all were young too, you know what I mean? Um, y'all were out there being criticized, being told you can't do things too. So, you know, just remember that. And so, yeah, that's that's typically the angle that I like to take. On that note, I guess if any of you have any last words that you'd like to say, um, any like parting words, parting message. I would add one thing just as like the one thing that I want someone listening to this, specifically like a non-Black person to take away from. And I think that's something Ajani and Nadia and I have all said at like one point or another throughout this conversation is that like to be a good ally if you do not do anything else, if you do nothing else, please listen. Listen to what we as not only Black people, but like also queer people and people of color um, and trans folk and um, differently abled folk and immigrant folk, like listen to what we need because no one has listened to us for hundreds of years. So if you listen to us now, that is the bare minimum for what at least I feel I would want in an ally. Like, listen, listen, listen. Well, I think that's a wrap. Thank you, Johnny, Primo, and Nadia for joining me in this conversation today. And thank you, Emiliano Villa, for leading that conversation. This episode was produced by Denise Tejada and our friends at YR Media, and it was edited by Luis Treyes. We want to thank our four panelists, Ajani Torres, Primo Lagasso Goldberg, and Nadia Brooks. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Sofia Palizacá, Janice Yamoka, Julieta Martinelli, Ginny Montalvo, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar, with help from Raúl Pérez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. 
Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fiedelholz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our interns are Sofia Sanchez and Marie Mendoza. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. I'll see you there. And remember, stay safe. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Annie E. Casey Foundation creates a brighter future for the nation's children by strengthening families, building greater economic opportunity, and transforming communities. California Endowment, building a strong state by improving the health of all Californians. And the Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org.